prayer. Our Father in heaven, grant us precisions of word and thought. Father, in true faith, give us the light of understanding by your Holy Spirit. Enable us to believe what you have spoken in your word, that you are one and the only true God, existing in Father, Son, and Spirit. Humble us, Lord, by the complexity of the matter at hand. Present in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. So today we begin a series on the attributes of God. I'm glad we have this time together. A.W. Tozer, in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, says the most important thing about you is what comes into your mind when you think about God. Not what you say or do, or what you say about yourself, but what you deeply in your heart conceive God to be like, your knowledge of God. In a way, our salvation depends on our knowledge of God. Jesus said, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. We must know God. Not carnal knowledge about him, but true knowledge based upon the word and spirit. So not just knowing about diamonds, where it's found underneath the earth and made of carbon atoms, its value in the marketplace, but the knowledge we gain when we gaze upon a beautiful, sparkling diamond, beholding it in its splendor. That's the kind of firsthand knowledge of God that we must have. And a high view of God sees God as holy, high, and lifted up, helping us to see ourselves rightly as sinful in a need of grace. A low view of God as idolatry and a mere figment of our imagination. A high view of God leads to humility and reverence. A low view of God leads to shallow worship and pride. What you think about God affects your politics. It affects your view of history. It affects your marriage. It affects how you endure trials, how you understand persecution. It affects everything. And in fact, your whole life is being driven by how you conceive God to be like. Everyone is a theologian. Everyone has this view of God in their minds. So in this class, my prayer is that we remove the blurriness of God's character and that it comes into sharper view so that our whole lives would be to live for God's honor and praise. Uh, Jeremiah 4, verse 23 uh, says, Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me. And so to that end, we're going to begin today with the doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, And this is somewhat unusual. Normally, if you read a book about the attributes of God, it begins with things like God is a spirit, God is omniscient, God is holy, God is loving. And Lord willing, we will get to those things. But I chose this topic first because when we discuss the attributes of God, they are the attributes of the triune God, applying equally to the Father, Son, and Spirit. So the Trinity will help us to understand how can God be the kind of God he is. Now, what is the Trinity? Where is that chapter and verse where the Bible defines the Trinity? Well, as you probably know, the word Trinity is not in the Bible. You don't find a point-by-point exposition of the Trinity. Does that mean it's not in the Bible? 
Well, we'll see. Uh, the word Trinity comes from the Latin Trinitas, which means threeness. So even though the word is not in the Bible, it captures an essential truth. So let's begin with a definition. Uh, Wayne Grudem uh, helpfully has defined the Trinity as this. God eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and each person is fully God, and there is one God. So each person is fully God, and there is one God. And to understand the importance of the Trinity, I want to tell you a story of a heroic man in the early church, a man from Africa of great courage and faithfulness. And this man defended the truth of Christ's deity against the raging assault of Satan. And this man was named Athanasius. In Athanasius' day, many inside the church actually excommunicated those who confessed that Jesus is Lord. In fact, Athanasius himself was exiled five times, thrown out of his church, and then called back, and always standing up for the truth. And during that time, many older people in the church uh, were allowing wolves to ravage Christ's flock. And by the year 300, the orthodoxy that Jesus as Lord was threatened with lies and heresy by a man named Arius. And Athanasius was only in his 20s, remarkably, when he entered into the public arena. And one of the examples in history where the younger generation was calling the older generation back to biblical faithfulness. And associated with Athanasius came the Latin phrase, Athanasius contramundum, Athanasius against the world. A man who stood against the world in defense of the truth. So may God raise up more men and women who are more concerned with being faithful to God's word than receiving the world's applause. And it was indeed a dark moment. Uh, this, the false doctrine from Arius spread rapidly during the early church. And what was Arianism? Well, Arius rightly said that there was only one God. But then disastrously, he wrongly reasoned that if Jesus was the Son of God, then he must have had a beginning. Right? He's the Son, he must have had a beginning. Right, And therefore, there must have been a time where Jesus did not exist and only the Father was eternal. And this came to be known as Arianism, which denies the full deity of Christ. And we see this ancient heresy in modern times. Right? Oneness Pentecostals, who were kicked out of the Assemblies of God many years ago. Mormons, Jehovah Witnesses, there's nothing new under the sun. But by God's grace, in a moment of great triumph, in 315 A.D., the church sent representatives to the city of Nicaea to wrestle with the, the scripture and to clarify their position. And the rest is history. There they formulated the Nicene Creed, which contains these important lines. And when you think of, when you read the Nicene Creed, think of begotten as meaning as the same essence as, and essence as the same godness as. So these important lines. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten, so of the same essence as the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made of the same essence as the Father, of the same Godness as the Father. And later in 381, a statement was added about the deity of the Spirit, which forms the modern Nicene Creed. And there, in the three great ecumenical creeds, uh, the Apostles, the Nicene, and the Athanasian Creed, are all structured around this threeness and oneness. And these creeds are like letters from our spiritual ancestors 
warning us against dangerous theological mistakes that have threatened the church in the past. Uh, But sadly, many in our modern day have not saw fit to have that humble listening of the past. Uh, Matt referenced last week that Ligonier study on the state of theology done for Americans. And it is clear that even in our own day, the doctrine of the Trinity is outright rejected by those who claim to be Christians. So the question was this. Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. In 2020, 30% of uh, of American evangelicals agreed that Jesus is not God. In 2022, that jumped to 43%. That's amazing and saddening. It's a travesty. Before we begin, let's ask the question, why does this even matter? Someone might object, I worship God. We don't need these distinctions. It's so abstract and vague. People throwing around terms like essence and begotten, co-this and co-that. It just seems so irrelevant. We don't need these distinctions as long as someone worships God. However they conceive him to be, that's what's most important, right? We worship God. Well, to the contrary, Jesus disagrees with that. Remember in Jesus' last discourse on the night of his betrayal, before going to the cross, before the darkness of the crucifixion, Jesus prays for his disciples in his high priestly prayer. And you can imagine the importance of these words. In his hour of crisis, before you go away, what will you say to the frightened disciples? What would you say? Stop being so anxious. You're always so anxious. Or I'll be right back. You know, (laughs) BRB. Uh, He doesn't say those things. Uh, Instead, to get through the crisis, Jesus is saying, I need you to have a deeper understanding of God. And he begins teaching them about the Trinity and the sweet fellowship between the Father, Son, and Spirit. And John 17, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, and they may be one even as we are one. Or verse 22, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. And the high priestly prayer underlines the glorious mystery of the Trinity. And so for the Lord Jesus, this isn't a speculative topic, right? It's, it's entirely practical. It helps us in times of suffering and persecution. And likewise, early Christians were passionate about this topic, not because they were interested in speculative philosophy or scholastic theology. Uh, no, because they wanted to worship the Lord rightly. And I would venture to say that preserving this truth in the Nicene Creed helped the church persevere through years of severe persecution. And if that is so, friends, the, the church is in a, in, a, in a must remove this blurriness and provide clarity on this important topic. And many Roman Catholic apologists will actually say, well, see, that's why you need the Roman Catholic Church, the big C, because you cannot prove the Trinity from the Scripture. You need the councils and the creeds, uh, but we must disagree with them there, uh, because ultimately we prove not our case, not from the Church Fathers, however helpful they may be as a humble listening to, of the past, but ultimately to the Scriptures. We must look to the Scriptures as the foundation of our faith. And so our goal in our time together is to expound scripturally of the, the Trinity. God is one, and God is in three persons, and discuss why this matters. And so to do this, we have to do three things uh, to prove the Trinity from the Scripture. First, we must show that God is one. Second, three in one. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all God. Each person is fully God. And third, these three persons are not identical. And then we'll spend some time thinking about application. So point number one, God is one. God is one. So the first thing we must say that Christians believe, just as Jews believe, 
is that God is one. And many accuse Christians of being polytheists, right? Accusing Christians of believing in three gods. And while it is true that Christians believe in a plurality, it is not polytheism. So Christians would hardly affirm Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Uh, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. So God is one. This is referred to as the Shema because the first word here is the Hebrew word Shema. Shema, O Israel. And Israel was to understand there is one God. In contrast to all the other surrounding nations who worship many false gods, Israel was to worship the one and only true God. There is one creator God. The creator God of Israel is the God who created the heavens and the earth and who redeemed the people out of slavery to be his special people. But in another sense, the Shema means for Israel not only to say that God is one, but God, you are the one. Like in a love relationship. God, you are the only one my heart desires. The one I will love with all my heart, my soul, my mind, and strength. And marriage pictures that exclusive love, does not? An unbreakable love between God and his people. And the first commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me. An exclusive loyalty to Yahweh as their king. And the people in exchange are his treasured possession. And the heart of the Old Testament is a call for Israel to worship God as their one and only true God and worship him alone. And this is a God who will have no rivals. His glory he will not share with another. He alone is God, utterly unique, ultimate authority. At his command, the Red Sea was parted. In the ten plagues, he shows his supremacy over all the other false gods of the Egyptians. He can make the sun stand still at his word. I am the Lord God. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. So all glory and praise are due his name alone. And God speaks authoritatively about the past and the future. He's in absolute control of all things. And there are only two possibilities. Either God is reigning or he is being ruled over. And the Old Testament is emphatic that God is reigning. Isaiah 44, chapter uh, Verse 6, thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock, I know not any. Or Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 39, see now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill, I make alive, I wound, I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hands. Because he's in, fully, he's in full control, fully sovereign, fully reigning, there is none that can deliver out of his hands. There is none beside him or over him. Uh, Isaiah chapter 45, verse 22, Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. And so consistent in the Old Testament is that there is only one God. And the New Testament actually affirms that, that God is one. Right? Jesus affirms the Shema in Mark 12. You'll recall one of the scribes asked Jesus, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So Jesus affirms that God is one. In 1 Corinthians 8, when resolving the question of meat sacrifice to idols, Paul says, we know that no idol is anything in the world, and there is no God but one. James says, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even demons believe and shudder. So the demons can affirm the Nicene Creed. First uh, Timothy 2.5, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. Ephesians 4.6, One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Uh, lastly, First Timothy 
The king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. So rewind in Genesis 1. This, this one God created all things. Unlike other pagan cosmic stories where creation is a result of gods fighting against each other, one God speaks the world into existence by his word, ex nihilo. Out of nothing, he creates. Ten times you read in the opening chapter, and God said, and it was so. And God has supreme authority over all creation. He is not some tribal God, but he is the king whom every person will give an account. And this is the one who created Adam and Eve in his own image. There is only one God. There are not three gods. There is only one. So the response to this oneness, right, makes Muslims and Jews say, that's right, God is one. So therefore, the Trinity is excluded, right? One plus one plus one equals three, right? Father, Son, Spirit, that's three gods. If God is one, that excludes Jesus and the Holy Spirit's deity. But this is not so, not at all. So let's look at the Old Testament again and examine this criticism. And B.B. Warfield, in his book, The Biblical Doctrine of the Trinity, has an insightful comment about the nature of the Old Testament's uh, witness about the Trinity. He says this, The Old Testament uh, may be likened to a chamber richly furnished, but dimly lit. The introduction of light brings into it, noth- into it nothing which was not in it before, but brings out into clearer view much what was in it, but was only dimly lit. That's a paraphrase. So he, what he's noting here is important, that the, the nature of the Scripture is progressive. It's progressive. So God re- reveals himself in stages. So the Trinity is more clear in Isaiah than it is in Genesis. It's more clear in the New Testament than it is in Isaiah. So the, the, the nature of the, the Scripture is progressive. It's, it, the, the light is getting brighter, and then when the light of the New Testament is brightest, we can go back into the Old Testament and see things that were dimly lit, but not at all perceived. It's like we know more now than they did back then. Right, yeah, exactly, exactly. So we can go back into the Old Testament, knowing what we know about God in the New, and see things that were there all along. And so the church fathers thought, this was very important to go back into the Old Testament and to see hints or, or footprints, they would call it. The, I think it's called the vestigia trinitatis. So it's the, the footprint or shadows of the triune nature of God in the Old Testament. So I want to throw out a question for us here. Is where in the Old Testament is the plurality of God implied? And I have some here, as you can see. Genesis 1, and the Spirit of the Lord hovered over... Mm-hmm. And then uh, when uh, uh, the angel of the Lord makes an appearance, mm-hmm. uh, that's the pre-incarnate Christ. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And then God. When does God ever make an appearance? Mm-hmm. The angel of the Lord is fascinating, right? He's a fascinating figure. He, he appears in numerous points. And angels refuse worship, right? Yeah. Um, in Revelation... Funny. Yeah, 22, the revelation, uh, the angel says, don't do that. I'm a fellow servant. Don't worship me. But this angel um, accepts worship. It appears he has God's name, right? And God sends him out. So it's, he has a name of God, but at the same time, he's distinct from God. So a lot of people have seen the angel of the Lord as being. Well, Jesus says in Israel, the spirit of the Lord was upon me. Mm-hmm. You know, he quotes Isaiah. 
Yeah, the spirit of. Yes, yeah. So we have Genesis. We have the angel of the Lord. Is there any other place that the plurality, Olivia? Yeah, yeah. I'm thinking when you say the Son of Man, I was thinking of Daniel 9, where the Son of Man is given all authority, sovereign power, and glory. And it's like, who is this Son of Man who is presented to the Ancient of Days and is given an eternal dominion, an eternal kingdom? It's puzzling, right? So where is the plurality of God implied in the Old Testament? So we have the angel of the Lord. There's the, the Daniel. There's certain places where it seems that there are a divine figure that appears. Yeah. The plurality of God implied. The, the servant passages in Isaiah come to mind. They're not... Mm-hmm. Uh, they're, they're very shadowy, but mm-hmm. once they're very much clarified once Jesus comes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the, the, the servant... The servant comes and seems to have the attributes of God. The servant will save his people from their sins. But who can save but God alone? Who is the servant that Isaiah speaks of? And Moses talking about there is going to come up, God will rise up a prophet after me. Mm-hmm. Listen to him. Yeah. Yes. But, but that passage not... <clears throat> if you listen to that passage, you just expect to learn a prophet. Sorry, I yeah, well, the, the context of the question was wrong. He was speaking about Jesus. Yeah, because Jesus, well, the, the prophet, the Deuteronomy 18, yeah. where it says, Moses says, I, there will be a prophet like me, and listen to him, and the prophet will say things that will come true, and that's the way you should know that he's a true prophet. And I think Jesus, his resurrection, right? He says, I'm going to be raised on the third day. And when it happens... It is the, the, the prophet that Moses spoke of. Um, but it's, it's, he's not necessarily the deity of God, I mean, the deity of Christ, but it does vindicate Christ and what all I said was true. Yeah. And it wasn't even yet. He had to wait for David to come. And then after David, Jesus came. Yeah. So Moses was talking about two people ahead of him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. To yeah. I, I, don't, I don't disagree. What I'm saying is that that passage itself mm-hmm. does not talk about Jesus as. Moses was not God, so if Moses said, I'm not a prophet like me, yeah. that passage in the context is actually, it's not the plurality of God. It's not the plurality of God. He, it's, 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 it's affirming the truthfulness of what Christ said and all they did. In, 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 and yes, I agree. And, and some of the things he said was, I and the Father are one. <laughs> yeah, Tom. Uh, maybe, maybe I missed this. I stepped out for a second, but the... Hebrew word for God, Elohim, is plural, but it's singular. It's used as a singular verb, but it's a plural noun referring to God, which is puzzling. Mm-hmm. It's, there's this plurality mm-hmm. in the Godhead, seemingly just in his name. Yeah. Uh, you can say the same thing from um, the Shema, Hero Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, because it uses three different names for God. It's the Yahweh, and then Elohim, and then 
this is a little more complicated, but in the Hebrew manuscripts, they didn't want to say Yahweh, so they vocalized it with Adonai. an I. Uh, so it's like Yahweh Adonai. Anyway, it's mm-hmm. the classic, you know, God is one passage. There's actually three names applied mm-hmm. for God. Yeah, that is good. That is good. It's, it's, it's sneaky hints. <laughs> like, I want you to get this, but I'm going to stick this in here too. Yeah. yeah. Like, you'll get it. Someday. Yeah. yeah. Right now, after coming out of Egypt with all these multiple gods, I want you to get God as one. <laughs> yeah. But later on, remember. <laughs> that's that's so true. Romans eight sixteen. The spirit of God bears witness to our spirit mm. that we are children. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But that's a reference to the spirit. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The spirit is equally God. Exactly. And all these and so many so much more. Um, if you look in the Old Testament, right, you can see. Hints, footprints, shadows of the triune nature of God. Not explicitly stated, but you can go back after the, of the New Testament, the light shines, and see like, oh yeah, I see that there were... The Old Testament authors were not uncomfortable using plural forms of nouns for God. Like, why is that? Um, but and one other is the Genesis 2, which we, we talked about. That let us make man in our image after our likeness. And Genesis 3, verse 22, the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Well, and it's interesting because the non, you know, some people could say, Look, you know, the, the church fathers, you can go and find anything you want in the Old Testament if you have an agenda. I can go find anything I want if I'm going to go in there looking for it. But even non-Christians wrestle with this passage of Genesis 2 and 3. So many Jewish rabbis contradict each other, fumbling at an explanation of what is going on in Genesis 2. Uh, some rabbis point that the us and our is Genesis as God speaking with angels. And other rabbis like, no, that cannot be. We did not, God, angels didn't create us. We're not creating the image of angels. That just cannot be. And one Jewish writer in the second century B.C., uh, wrote a book called Jubilee, and he had a lengthy quote of Genesis, and he just dropped the plural self-reference out of it. <laughs> so that's one way of avoiding the problem. Just, uh, just avoid it by deleting it from your, your quotation. And I think that just shows the early church were not reading back into the Old Testament things that weren't there if Jewish non-Christians were wrestling with the same issues with the plurality that's implied. And, you know, the us and our, from a New Testament perspective, we can say this is intra-Trinitarian conversation. So let us make man in our image. And I think when John writes, in the beginning was the word, the, was, the word was God, the word was with God, right? Jesus was clearly there. The spirit is there. And the scripture is hinting at that there is a plurality within the Godhead, even in their act of creation, and so our response to the Muslim is that there is one God, but there is a plurality, and that is attested to in the Old Testament. Uh, one other uh, one I wanted to speak about was uh, Psalm 110. Psalm 110. Psalm 110 was the verse one was the fa- his, Jesus' favorite verse in the Bible uh, to quote from. It's quoted from uh, in 24 separate or alluded to in 24 different times. And Psalm 110 verse one says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And the Lord, Yahweh, is speaking to another person whom he calls Lord. 
right? And this other person, clearly within the context of the psalm, is the Messiah, David's messianic son. And this one in, in Psalm 110 who sits at God's right hand, who triumphs over his enemies. He is a priest in the order of Melchizedek. He has divine power to, to judge the nations, to shatter kings in his wrath. So the Lord is speaking to the Lord, this Messiah. It's a puzzling reality. What is going on? And Jesus quotes this in his dispute with the Pharisees who are attacking him. Jesus says to the Pharisees, who do you think of the, what do you think of the Christ? Whose son is he? They answer, the son of David. Then he, then he said, how is it that David in the, in the spirit calls the Messiah Lord? And I think he's, it's, the same, it's the same Yahweh speaks to Adonai um, in, in Psalm 110. And I don't know how fully David understood this and what he was saying. But under the inspiration of the spirit, he's somehow saying that the Lord is speaking to another person whom is called Lord, the God the Father is speaking to the Son. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. In Isaiah 9, this Messiah is called Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And again, this Messiah will save his people from their sins in Isaiah 53. But who can save from our sins but God alone? Um, who is this Messiah that David and Isaiah speak about? So those are the hints. It's there, but it's, you know, we don't know. It could be... Is God three persons? Is God more than three persons from the Old Testament? We can't, we can't say for sure. Uh, but one of the remarkable things is that once you open the pages of the New Testament, the Trinity isn't so much explained, but it's assumed throughout the whole narrative. And so what was vaguely hinted at in the Old Testament now becomes clear. You know, some say Jesus never claimed to be God, uh, except in a few lines in John's Gospel that were added much later. Uh, <laughs> is that right? Does the New Testament affirm Jesus' deity? Um, yes, it does. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, they do. Um, I was trying to add one real quick thing yes. about the Old Testament. That there, there's scholars that now are, are acknowledging that ancient Judaism did have this pluralistic, pluralistic conception of their one God, and that that... The, the phenomenon of Judaism denying that is a recent, it's a recent phenomenon that's post-Christian that I would say it was in response to Christianity, but that if you read mm-hmm. first century Jewish texts, first century BC, AD, they, they seem to all acknowledge this, mm-hmm. uh, many of them anyway, and then that's lost once you go through the Christian centuries. Um, so I think they, they knew it. Uh, it wasn't, they may not have the exact conception, you know, precise trinity, but mm-hmm. they knew there was this plurality. It wasn't just David said something, everybody forgot it. I think they, they were aware. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. So they, even his, historically, this plurality has been part of the Jewish faith. And it's not something the church fathers just yeah. kind of came up with that thin air. Yeah. And I, I think we can emphatically say, yes, the New Testament affirms Jesus' deity. Um, Pastor Matt preached on Mark 2 a couple weeks ago. Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. He's Lord over God's law. Uh, Jesus receives worship. After the resurrection, Thomas says, my Lord and my God. Jesus doesn't say, look, I'm your Lord, but not your God. What what are you doing? He says, no, no, no. He he accepts worship. He's like, yes. He accepts worship that is due God alone. And in Revelation, the lamb on the throne is worshipped. He receives that which is due to, to God alone. He not only receives worship, he takes on divine titles, right? He is given the name Savior. 
But Isaiah 43, God says, I, even I am the Lord, apart from me there is no Savior. And Jesus, the name Jesus literally means Savior. Savior. Uh, and not only Savior, but he takes on the name of Shepherd, right? John 10. And David would, would say, the Lord is my Shepherd. Um, and there's many other titles that Jesus takes on. Redeemer, the Son of Man, the True Vine, the Bridegroom, clearly alluding to God's work in the Old Testament. Uh, the I Am statements in the Gospel of John are filled with allusions to Jesus' deity. Uh, and one of the, the I Am statements, uh, for example, is I am the light of the world. And that gives, that gives life to the world. He's recalling the wilderness experience and the pillar of fire that led Israel through the desert. So any listener would have understood that light was a picture of the light of God himself. And the light metaphor is where the light of God's glory is present. As God led the people through the wilderness to salvation, Jesus is saying, I will lead my people out of darkness into the light of salvation through my life and death. And so these I am statements are alluding to God's work in the Old Testament. Uh, and he not only takes on save, uh, titles like Savior, Shepherd, Redeemer, and Lord, uh, he has divine works, right? He forgives sins. But who can forgive sins but God alone, as, as the Pharisees recognized? They were right. They were right. Only God can forgive sins because ultimately, as David said, my, I've sinned against God and him alone, and my, my sin against Bathsheba and Uriah. Uh, he stops the wind at his word. What kind of man is this, says the disciples? Even the winds and sea obey him. Answer, he's God, right? He's God. He even commands the, 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 the forces of nature. And there's more we can say. Uh, the apostles consistently gave the title Lord to Jesus in their letters. Uh, 1 Corinthians 8, 6, uh, Paul says, Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and who, through whom we exist. And it's interesting, that is the, 1 Corinthians 8, 6, people will point out that is the Shema, and Paul is inserting Jesus into that as describing him as Lord. Uh, there is one God in 1 Corinthians 8, 6. So, he's, so Paul calls him Lord, through whom all things exist. And the, the word Lord in the New Testament is the, the Hebrew word translated into the Greek, uh, kyrios. Kyrios. And that is the word that is used to describe Jesus over and over again. Uh, and that same word is used over 6,000 times in the Old Testament to describe God. Uh, so Jesus is fully God. And you recall, Jesus in John 8 calls himself Yahweh. Uh, before Abraham was, I am. And the Pharisees understood what he was saying because they picked up stones to, to kill him for blasphemy, right? They would be right. He's calling himself God, except that it was true. Jesus was God. <laughs> yeah, understandable reaction. You're only 50 years old. You're saying you saw Abraham face to face? He existed 2,000 years ago. And Jesus was saying, I am God. And they understood what he was saying because they picked up stones to kill him. Yes. His people knew him not. Yes. Yes. Jesus. Yes. Yes. 
the love of God. Uh, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, as Hebrews 1 says. So, the eternal Son of God, light from light, true God from true God. We don't need to pick a couple verses from John to prove Jesus' deity. It is throughout the entire New Testament. Uh, so let's talk about the Holy Spirit, the third distinct person from the Trinity yeah, of the one God. The Father is God, Jesus is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. And these are distinct persons despite there being only one God. I hope your mind is just kind of getting a little confused now. How, is that, how can that be possible, there being one God and three distinct persons in the, in the one God? Uh, and, and some people will say, I don't really get this whole business about the Holy Spirit. Um, that's just the word for the breath, the wind, the power of God working through the world. Right? Um, they don't see the, the Holy Spirit as a distinct person. And you know, Christians who grew up with the KJV, anyone grew up with the KJV here? KJV? There you go. Are familiar with the term Holy Ghost. And the Holy Ghost, it has, it has connotations of, of, of distance, of an impersonal God. Who's a ghost? The Holy Ghost. Right. It's like, who, who is the Spirit? I mean, and you know, in many passages, the Holy Spirit is spoken of, of impersonal terms. Uh, we tend to think of uh, the Holy Spirit as a force, but the Holy Spirit is a person, right? And frequently does activities that belong to personhood. So right before the cross, Jesus expresses an internal intimacy with the Father, and he promises to send the Holy Spirit onto the church, one distinct from both the Father and the Son, and the Holy Spirit is the paraclete, the, the, the helper, the advocate. It says that God decrees, Jesus accomplishes, and the Holy Spirit applies mm-hmm. salvation. Yes. So, it's all Trinitarian in the end, yes. Our whole faith all is Trinitarian. Yes. Now, why did, Jesus ha- why did Jesus have to leave before the Holy Spirit comes? Well, that's easy, because God wanted it to be that way. <laughs> um, I, I actually don't know why the, this Jesus had to leave before the Spirit comes. Uh, maybe it's because Jesus was... The Holy Spirit had to be poured out. Yes, yes. And the panic. So it can come back down. Yes, yes. Yeah, at a, at, a, at a Pentecost, yeah, the Spirit is poured out. But yeah, the, so there's the Jesus is ascends and the Spirit comes down. And the Spirit in John 14, 26 is the helper, the one whom the Father will send in my name. He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have taught you. And so the Holy Spirit teaches us, right? He, the Spirit enables them to remember. He bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. The Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. He intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Right? The Spirit understands our needs. And Paul in 1 Corinthians 4, the Spirit searches everything. He knows every aspect of the depths of God. And He makes God known. So that's one of the roles of the Spirit is to make God known. He applies the work of redemption in our hearts. Uh, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 11, the Spirit gives gifts to each one individually as He wills. So the Spirit gifts us and for service. Uh, Acts 16, verse 6, Paul is traveling through Asia and he, as they attempted to go into Bithynia. And it says the Spirit does not allow them to go. And so the, the Spirit is preventing them from going somewhere. The Holy Spirit talks. He says to Philip, go and join the chariots. So the Spirit speaks to Philip. And, of course, the Spirit can be grieved and troubled by what we do. 
Um, so the Spirit possesses full deity of the Godhead. Raul mentioned earlier the deity of the Spirit in the, in the work of creation, where the Spirit is hovering over the waters. In the birth narratives, Jesus is conceived by the Spirit. The Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness where Satan tempts him. And after he overcomes temptation, he goes forth in the power of the Spirit, proclaiming good news as the Spirit of the Lord is upon him. So the Holy Spirit is equally God and distinct from the Father and the Son. So in summary, there's one God. There are, th- there are not three gods, but there's one God, but there are three persons who are distinct from each other. The Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God, but the Father is not the Son, nor the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father, nor the Son. They're not identical. So, and this is clear from Jesus in the Great Commission. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name, the one name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. So, there's one God in three persons. So let's say something about some common mistakes that we make when describing the Trinity, especially the use of analogies. I want to get to analogies. <laughs> so we can say that analogies could be helpful, right? If you, an analogy might help you understand some of this oneness and threeness. But I think if we go right to the analogy, we actually end up misrepresenting the triunity of God. Um, so Christians will say, well, God is one, but he appears in three different forms, right? So oftentimes this mistake, this mistake is done when we start analogizing. God has three different masks that he puts on. Um, that's called modalism, yes. Uh, they appear, God appears in different modes. And so God's like H2O. Sometimes he's water, sometimes he's ice, sometimes he's steam. And that's kind of water's appearing in different forms. Uh, but the problem is if water... Water can turn into steam, but can the Father turn himself into the Spirit? No, he can't. Um, and there's no situation where it's, wa- it's water, steam, and ice, and they're all three at, at once, right? So it's not, it, it's, not like the, it's not a good analogy for the Trinity, although we can, that might be helpful, but it ultimately falls short. God can't turn himself into the Spirit because God is the Spirit. There is no turning. Yeah. He is. Yes. Yeah. Another one is like, well, it's like a man who's a father and a brother and a son all together, right? So I'm a, I'm a man. I'm also I'm a father. I'm a husband. I'm a son. Three in one, right? Well, that doesn't work either because that denies the distinctions within the Godhead. Um, it's, that doesn't, so all analogies ultimately fail us. I haven't heard of a good analogy. I mean, they could be helpful, but I, I think we want to say the Trinity is a mystery beyond, beyond our comprehension. Um, and it's, that makes sense, doesn't it? If God says that my ways are not your ways, my thoughts are above your thoughts, of course we're not going to find an analogy that perfectly corresponds one-to-one with who God is. The only thing we have to work with with analogies is created things. And we know what Paul says about <laughs> exchanging the glory of the Father for things that are created. So that's... Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's going to fail us. Yeah, maybe, yeah. Maybe, I don't know. Maybe it's a bridge to understanding sometimes. But yeah. Words escape us. Words escape us. When you try to define who God is and what He is, the words fail. Mm-hmm. I got it up here. 
I just don't have it when the words come out. Yes, yes. Like Augustine said, what is needed is a loving profession of ignorance (laughs) rather than a rash profession of knowledge. (laughs) Yeah, we need to just profess our ignorance and not like rashly profess our knowledge of the matter. Yeah. So uh, let's pause for a moment and ask ourselves, how does the plurality of God help us understand God's character? Because this is an attribute of God class. How How does that help us understand God's character. Well, I'll start. There's a big difference between the conception of Allah and a Christian's view of the triune God. Um, So if we deny the Trinity, and let's say God was like Allah, God would need his creation to be loving. Would he not? Can you love anything if you have been in solitary confinement since eternity past? No, you need an object to love, to be loving. And the scripture presents the Father, Son, and Spirit being in eternal relationship and fellowship with each other in eternity past. They have loved each other from eternity past. It's out of this love and joy that they create the world. Um, Or else, if they weren't together, in a way you'd have to say God needs creation to be loving. But that's not the case. It's like in C.S. Lewis's Narnia, uh, the magician's nephew, Aslan sings creation into existence. It's a happy voice out of love. It's, and it's just as if God sings the world into existence in Genesis 1. And it's out of this love and joy that he makes us. And uh, it's in Christ God is drawing us into that three-person love that has always existed, to have the sweet fellowship with the Trinity And what's amazing is that the Father, when he views us in Christ, has the same love for us as he does for his very own Son. It's like he's drawing us into that three-person world of love that has always existed from eternity past. And God, and we could understand that God was, the Father was eternally a father, right? He he didn't become a father once creation was, was done in Genesis 1. He was always a father. And the Son was always a son who loved his Father and honored him. And so God is a God of love because God is a triune God. And we are created in the image of God. Ought we not to do the same, right? So we're created in this triune God image, and we ought to be loving each other. It's helped us. So let me speak to, to fathers just, just for a moment. Fathers or future fathers. In some families, the father is absent, right, or uninvolved in their children's lives, in some cases, I've known men who have never heard their father say, I love you. The father never said it. That's me. Yeah. Never, never said it. What a distortion of, 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 of the character of God the father, right? As the father said to the son, you are my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. As the father said that to the son, we as fathers should say the same, right, to our children. And that's the character of of the Father that we are imaging as fathers. And I, I just, so fathers, just be obnoxious about this, right? We need to be constantly saying this to our kids. Tell your kids that you love them. You delight in them. Every single day, don't just tell them that you love them, but actually love them. And if you have young kids, play with your kids. And I think that's teaching a profound lesson about the nature of God and God the Father. When fathers take on the role of loving care for their children, and we are, we are imaging 
the triune nature of God. And as Raul said, our faith is Trinitarian at its core. So whoever has saving faith has been drawn by the Father, moved by the Spirit to confess Jesus is Lord of all. And forgiveness happens because the Father puts forward the Son, the righteous one, in exchange for the unrighteous and satisfies God's wrath against sin. And the Spirit applies that work of redemption to our hearts. So it's one unified program, right? The Spirit intercedes for us, bringing our prayers to the Father in groanings too deep for words, as Jesus, our great high priest, always lives to make intercession for us. Nobody takes a break. They're constantly always working as one. They're always working as one. Amen. So who should we pray to? We have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Who should we pray to? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I, 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 yeah, exactly. Amen, brother. Amen. Yes, pray. Um, I, I'll just say it's okay to pray to the Father, Son, or Spirit. Um, but I will say Jesus prayed to the Father a lot. Um, and I think the pattern is praying to the Father through the Son by the Spirit. But we also have examples where Stephen is praying to the Lord Jesus in Acts. So even though they're all three, they're three in one, one in three, there is a pattern that we're praying to the Father through the Son by the Holy Spirit. But having said that, it is okay to pray to the, the Spirit. It's okay to pray to the Son. Um, Jesus could only pray to the Father. We can pray to the whole, you know, but Jesus could, he can only pray to the Father. He can't pray to himself. Right. Yeah, he's the Trinity. He's part of the Trinity. Mm-hmm. You pray for yourself. Yeah, our Father in heaven. Yeah. So, so I want to throw this out a question. So, other ways that the Trinity helps us to understand something about ourselves made in the image of God. So, how does the Trinity help us to understand something about ourselves made in God's image? There was weird stuff. <laughs> Yeah, so submission to authority isn't inherently dehumanizing, as some would say, because the the son submits himself to the father. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, I've always had this problem that I always ask myself: Did Jesus save? Did God save me because He liked me, because He loved me? Because I got a lot of Christian brothers and sisters that I just don't like, but I'm (laughs) that I'm called to love them. Yeah. You know, I mean, I'm sure there's a lot that's not likable about me, mm-hmm. a, lot of, a lot of people, but they're called to love me, and I'm called to love them, mm-hmm. and that's a big mystery, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Why don't we do that through the Spirit? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Ivor. That, that whole thing is no mystery to me. I come from a large family. I don't like any of but you love them. You love them. <laughs> well, I think that there's something, too, that uh, our three-in-one God was a family before creation. Mm-hmm. But then that he is our creator, that means we belong to him. Or 
Mm -hmm. So, so probably you, I, I struggle a lot too with whether God likes me or not. But He does the thing. He created us in His image. Yeah, that image is marred by sin, but He restores that. Mm -hmm. Right? Like there's there's no need to hate myself because God restores the goodness in me. Mm -hmm. um, I, I resist. I make it slower sometimes, mm -hmm. but He's patient. So, uh, yeah, God is. Mm -hmm. God is a family God, and he, he mm. doesn't mind dealing. He came down into our space to mm -hmm. deal with the mess and uh, to live with us. And brings the brings the transcendent. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think I wonder if that, that tension of like and love, I think, also helps with that. Reflects the tension between us being justified and sanctified. I think in the sense in which that God loves us, but like Abraham, in some way, was a friend of God. There is a there is a place yeah. of being known and like you know who. Mm -hmm. And when Jesus talks about those who obey my commandments, and I think when we when we sin, we suffer his displeasure. And I think it's fair to say in those moments, like yeah, why maybe he wouldn't like us. The same when we think about yeah. heavenly fathers, but. Mm -hmm. I think that the base, the bedrock of love doesn't change. The what changes is is the nuance of we say fellowship, for lack of a better word. And so I, I don't mm -hmm. think it is. Yeah. I think it's a way to think about those two could be true. There could be time when we distant from God because of our sin. There are times when our sin makes us feel distant from God, and then God is essentially using that as a way to draw us close to Him. But I don't know that it is to and to purify is to. I think both of those perceptions do have a role in reminding us that the goal is to grow deeper in fellowship and in love with God. And, mm -hmm. uh, but it starts with the bedrock of His love for us, and actually without that, mm -hmm. that idea of being liked by Him is not even possible. Mm -hmm. I think we can't destroy the dignity we've been given as made in God's image. That's that's been really important for me. Is mm -hmm. the. Uh, what is it? His uh, his displeasure lasts for a moment, but his love yeah. lasts for a lifetime. Right? Mm -hmm. I was reading a book by Michael Horton. I got it downstairs in my lending library. When the the apostles or the disciples were in the boat in the Sea of Galilee, and the waves came up, and they were, "Master, Master, we're going to drown! Wake up!" And he was just asleep. And and Michael Horton, in one of his books, in the face of God. The dangers of spiritual intimacy talks about. Oh, oh, the waves are getting big. Uh, let's wake them up. We might drown. No, it was a dreaded fear. Where when when like when Job was before God in the pillar of the cloud, or when Moses saw the backside of God, and it was like this gentle man in the front of this boat can kill us. It's not the water that we should be afraid of or the wind that he stopped. It's him. It's him. And he loves us. But he can just like, <laughs> in a second, but he doesn't. You know? Mm -hmm. And it's like, wow, our God is a consuming fire. Mm -hmm. Yet he loves us and stoops and, lo and loves us. Mm -hmm. It's just It just blows my mind. Yeah, yeah. You know, either he's crazy around crazy. <laughs> It, it is interesting that the first reaction that people in the, in, in the Bible have when they see God is not of like, 
this is great, but like fear, right? They're like, fall, like, I'm a man of unclean lips. You're going to destroy yeah. me, God. But then God like invites him. He, he, he washes him clean, invites him in. So it's this, yeah, his holiness is the basis of our, our fear, but his holiness actually draws us in into yeah. fellowship with him. Which awesome is, fear, reverent fear. Yeah. Yeah, you know, it's an amazing. It's like yeah. a three-year-old kid watching his son, his father, who's a lumberjack, cut lumber, and he said, "This is my daddy. He can destroy me, but he loves me. <laughs> yeah. He'll never hurt me." Right. Yeah. You know, and it's like that's how we should be with God. Yeah. Yeah. We all this power, but he won't hurt us. Yeah. Because yeah. Of his son. Yeah. He already he struck the son once. He won't. Yeah. He won't strike us a second time. Yes. Amen, brother. Made my day, bro. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, bro. Let me just finish up. And I have just a few more thoughts. Um, we, imitri- we imitate the Trinity in our life together, in our families, and at the church. Uh, when we mutually love one another in the church, we are imaging something of God Himself for people outside the church. As in each place is part in the grand play of redemption, something like who God is between the Father, Son, and Spirit. Um, and we said our marriages model something of the Trinity. The wife is not inferior, and the husband is not inferior. The children are not inferior, even though they may work differently in the house, right? They're, we're all creating the image of God, even if some of us play different roles than others. Um, and, and finally, uh, the, the Trinity should curb intellectual pride. Uh, God calls us to faith in the absence of a comprehensive explanation. God is one, God is three. It doesn't explain how this is. And as Christians, we receive it by faith. Um, Someone once asked uh, a man, Daniel Webster, a prominent orator in the 19th century, how a man of his intellect could believe in contradictions. That three equals one. Webster replied, I do not fully pretend to understand the arithmetic of heaven now. (laughs) But the doctrine of the Trinity doesn't mean that three equals, it's not a contradiction, but it does show a humility in approaching the subject. And so with that, friends, we've reached a little bit. There's so much more we, could, we can plumb the depths of. Um, and that's why we worship an awesome, an awesome God who is beyond our finite in comprehension. Uh, so let me pray. And if there are any other questions, we can do that. Um, Father in heaven, we do thank you for you, the light of understanding by your word, By special revelation, you reveal yourself to us. And you are not a God that we could just create out of a figment of our imagination, Lord. You are an awesome God, beyond all our highest thoughts. And Father, help us to have humility as we worship you, Father, Son, and Spirit. And that we would honor you, Lord, with our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Thank you, friends. Thanks, brother. Thanks, brother.